This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, our town hall with Indivisibles and Democratic Party leaders in red and rural districts throughout the state. We centered their work, both their organizing and electoral work, and we explore some of the ways that Indivisibles in blue and purple areas can come together to help advance the work being done by our friends in these districts. Our guests are Bob Schutte, group leader for Indivisible Ponderay and vice chair of the Agriculture and Rural Caucus for the Washington State Democrats. Also by Alex Fain and Marsha McGuire, leaders with Indivisible Squim, and then by Danielle Garvey-Reeser. She is co-chair of the Washington State Democrats Rural Committee and the 5th Congressional District Representative to the Washington Democrats Executive Board, and she recently ran for state senate in the 16th LD. This was recorded on the evening of Tuesday, April 13th. First and foremost, thank you to all of our guests for being here, uh, two of whom, actually three of whom, are farmers. You keep farmers hours, so I know this is late for you, so we really appreciate you staying up late. And so I thought what we would do to start with our guests is just go around the table, maybe introduce yourself briefly, talk about specifically where you live, and, and maybe give us a sense of what, is, what it's like there uh, demographically, politically. Uh, Bob Schutte, I want to start with you. Uh, and also, I'll just let people know, you told me if you're you're having wind, and if it goes dark, that means your power has gone out. So that gives you a little bit of an idea where Bob's at. Uh, you live on a farm, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, so give us an idea of, of Ponderay County and like, you know, racial and age demographics, political affiliation, all that stuff. Well, if you, some of you may not even know where Ponderay County is located, but we're the very northeast corner of Washington, bordered by British Columbia to the north, Idaho to the east, and Spokane, which you've heard of, is to the south. Very, very rural. There's about 13,000 uh, population, uh, which um, there's more bears and elk probably out here in the woods than there are people. Uh, we have a very much of an aging population here, typical a rural area. Uh, I'm not sure that exact demographic average out there, but uh, we have an aging population. Our biggest challenge, of course, is lack of jobs, opportunity, being able to retain young people, uh, retain our middle class because of lack of jobs and other socioeconomic factors. In fact, we we lost one of the largest employers in Pine Ridge County, the paper mill, last summer, summer, which was 100-plus jobs. And uh, that is a huge hit for our area from the standpoint of economics. Politically, we're about a 70-30 split, and that's 70% red. So you can understand with those numbers, the challenges you have over here if you're progressive and or Democrat. It's an uphill climb, and uh, we really, really appreciate the work that you're doing uh, so much. Um, Alex Fain, I'm going to just switch over to you to give us a sense of what SQUIM is like uh, demographically and and politically. We were talking before we got started about just how beautiful it is, so maybe you can give us an idea of what it's like on the ground. And I will just uh, kind of um, billboard for people that uh, anybody who has been following what's happening in SQUIM knows that you have a situation with a QAnon adherent mayor, and we will be talking about that uh, quite a bit uh, this evening. But yeah, just to get started, give us an idea of what SQUIM is like, just in all the same ways that, that Bob described. Okay. Well, on the northern Olympic Peninsula, uh, SQUIM has about 8,000 in, in city limits and about another 29,000 in the surrounding hills. Um, it's about 86% white, uh, almost 4% Asian, but 1% uh, American Indian. Uh, which have a much bigger uh, uh, cultural impact than you would expect for their numbers. Um, there's a, it used to be a dairy town that's reinvented itself as a lav- lavender capital, uh, tourist destination, and retirement uh, mecca, let's say. And so uh, a lot of, uh, in the last uh, 10 years or so, a lot of new retirees, uh, Seattle um, escapees and uh, burnouts from Cal- people who have left California, uh, fire things and everything else. So uh, it's a it's a mix of uh, newcomers and uh, and former uh, farmers. So we've got the extremes of the right, including a good percentage of militia folks up in the hills. And we've got uh, more formerly urban educated uh, in in the town. Um, uh, 
for uh, the demographics of Indivisible Squim were 65% female over six, 65 and up years old. And, uh, and uh, so many of us are uh, transplants. Uh, we've been glad to see and we've been helping, um, encouraging, and networking with other um, organizations forming that are, are younger and of more locals who can have more of an impact uh, locally with name recognition and their networks uh, for as uh, candidates. Uh, we've got about 630 members, 300 on Facebook, about over 300 who just want emails. They don't want Facebook. And... Um, um, well, uh, I don't want to go too long. But no, I, I, I think so. you're giving us a really good picture. And honestly, you know, you're giving us some of the upsides, some of the downsides. And I just have to tell you, you had me at Lavender Capital. I could live there. <laughs> it, it, it sounds like a relaxing place to be. Um, and, and fishing, cycling, and, and hiking. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's you, you live in such a beautiful part of the state. Uh, Daniel Garby-Reeser, um, you also live on a farm just outside of Walla Walla, right? Yep. So I am here on land that was original to the Cayuse, Umatilla, and Walla Walla people. My husband's family has farmed here for over 150 years, and I am a fourth generation Eastern Washingtonian, having grown up in Moses Lake area and came down here for school, left and was a diplomat and saw the world and missed home and came back to Walla Walla in 2015. And it's changed dramatically in the last several decades, um, thanks to an agricultural product called grapes. And so anyone who's paying attention that we are, uh, we do have some great lavender. We are not the capital, but we are um, America's best wine tasting region, according to a national survey last year. Um, so a fascinating area that's changing, um, both in terms of the economy, the wine industry has brought a lot of jobs, but more service industry jobs. We're seeing an affordable housing challenge as a result as um, people are buying second homes and pushing up prices um, that are making it hard for new school teachers or new police officers to um, start a house and have that income. The city of Walla Walla is about um, 32,000 people and it has now in the last couple electoral cycles started to vote reliably blue. Um, Lisa Brown's congressional race in um, 2018, she won the city um, and in 2020 when I ran, I won the city of Walla Walla um, and we're surrounded by farmland that is um, very red districts, more like the 3070 split like Bob sees up in Ponderay. And so the whole county is just over 60,000, a lot of wheat land out here, um, still more actually than grapes, even though grapes are so well known. Um, our Walla Walla sweet onions, um, we have the largest contiguous apple orchard in the United States is in Walla Walla County. So lots of great agriculture resources and a diversified economy with three colleges here, Whitman College, Walla Walla University, and Walla Walla Community College. So a dynamic area that's um, really changing in some exciting ways. I forgot to ask you what you grow on your farm. We generally have wheat. Um, obviously, we you have to rotate wheat crops, so sometimes we'll have alfalfa or other other crops as well, but mostly it's been wheat lately. Well, you know, I think I also want to talk with the Indivisible members here about how they got involved. Um, and uh, Danielle, I know you're not involved with the group yet, but we're going to get you. Uh, but for Bob, Alex, uh, Marsha, and Kat, um, I'd love for you to tell us how you got involved with Indivisible, how your group came about, how many members. Just just give us a little bit of a sense of that. Bob, can we start with you on that? Well, our group started in January of 2017. Uh a neighbor's house in Newport. Snow was on the ground. I remember that very well because in four wheel drive to get to the farm to town. And uh, a group of us sat around the table and said, you know, what can we do to get rid of Trump basically? And also what can we do to uh, change the direction our country was going? And this is the standpoint of not only with the president, but also what we're seeing in Congress. And, uh, you know, a lot of us have been involved with politics uh, off and on for years and years, but I think the 2016 election was a real wake-up call for a lot of people, and especially with our group. So that's how we basically got started. We had a core group of about, I don't know, 
10 to 12 people starting out at what the 20 and it you know varies and varies and varies but the real incentive was uh uh to pay attention to what was going on be very proactive all of us in the group were progressives or, or and or democrats um kind of circle back we have about 60 people on our email list there's about 12 to 15 people that are very very active you can count on and it varies depending on what we're doing events we're holding and so forth but uh the biggest thing is that is you know we want to have a voice and uh indivisible was able to do that and the beauty of indivisible we found and the one reason we were all attracted to it is the structure it gives you a lot of flexibility versus um you know the, the political party uh that's just call it what it is so the flexibility was a very attractive to the group that came together. I also want to ask you about uh, a position that you have in the Democratic Party. But, Kat, I'm going to call an audible here. I'm going to ask everybody who's present tonight, can you just say in the chat bar uh, where you're from and what, if any, indivisible group you are affiliated with? I would just love to get kind of a, a snapshot of where people are, are, are from. Um, so, Bob, you are the vice chair of the Agriculture and Rural Caucus for State Democrats. What's involved with that position? Well, I started out as being uh, uh, interested in the programs they were having. You know, one of the co- this is part of the uh, state party as far as the caucus. But one of the things that the, uh, the the ag caucus does is very driven by education, also uh, tracking legislation, uh, supporting candidates, all involving what is good for agriculture and rural Washington. You know, uh, if you look at the mixture. In the legislature, there's basically no Democrats or progressives in the east side of the state in rural areas. So that was a real key part of um, me being becoming very interested in the Ag and Rural Caucus. And then, you know, as, I, as more got interested in, in taking part in the conversations and programs and so forth, I decided, okay, what can I do for the Ag and Rural Caucus? And, and was elected vice chair. Well, thank you for doing that. It's important work. Um, Alex, I'm going to shift over to you on this and ask you about your group. Um, Tell us about how it came together, how many members, how often you meet, all that good stuff. It came together uh, really fast uh, under uh, the original leadership, Elizabeth Schilling and Joan Cotto, California and Seattle refugees. Uh, In uh, response to the election of Trump and the Women's March, and I think it almost immediately grew to be about 500 very, very active people. And um, uh, and it sort of uh, grew by, uh, well, because one of the rural things that the Democratic County seat was in Port Angeles and the Dems there were focused a lot on, on their area and it left a vacuum in Squim uh, that wasn't filled. So Indivisible filled that. And of course, we love the freedom of action to liaise with, you know, we do things with move on or all kinds of different uh, things and have our own speakers and uh, on monthly meetings, uh, monthly postcard parties. And we did so much for uh, Vote Forward, uh, uh, Flip the West and all the rest, helping out Georgia and doing all kinds of things. So we were very active and their founders had us geared on national issues um, in in the beginning, mm-hmm. and we were we made I think having rallies and being visible um, uh, the norm in the town that other people other new movements springing up, which we're love so glad to see have have followed. It's super, not. yeah. It's super cool when you get to be a vanguard, yeah. And everybody's kind of yes, going, "What? Yes. What's Alex doing? Let's follow that." So I'm looking at some of the people who are, are signing off here. Uh, let's see, we have uh, people from Oregon. Well, we have somebody from uh, Indivisible Washington's Eighth and Issaquah goes by the name of Janice Cox. I've never heard of her. I have no idea who she is. Hi, mom. Um, <laughs> let's see, we've got uh, Ocean Park, Duval, Kitsap, uh, Indivisible Claremont, Inland Valley. What up, Southern California? How's it going? Uh, we got some Oregonians, uh, of course, Ponderay, Mount Hood, all over the place. This is fantastic. We're so glad that you guys are all here tonight. Uh, Daniel, I want to talk to you right now because I'm really, really excited about what you're doing. And as I said, you're not officially affiliated with Indivisible yet, but like I said, we're going to get you there. Uh, but I want to talk about your position as co-chair of the Washington State Democrats Rural committee you were just appointed right yes i I was and so um i we have state party 
elections um, at the January every two years. And so at that time, I was elected as a state committee member for the 16th legislative district. And then the state just reorganized the committees and caucuses. As Bob said, he um, took his new role in the Ag and Rural Caucus. And so I'm one of the co-chairs of the Rural Committee. Um, wouldn't be a party organization without um, various chains of bureaucracy, but um, <laughs> it's exciting to have a lot of enthusiasm behind rural issues right now. And so our committee is more focused on the electoral side and looking at um, how do we look at the landscape of Washington state? Where are there opportunities on issues from redistricting of the data analysis of um, how we mobilize on messaging and um, party building across the state and especially in rural areas. So um, exciting work and just want to say a big um, shout out to Indivisibles all over. We did have a chapter here start in the area shortly after 2016 and it didn't itself um, maintain momentum, but uh, the spirit lives on and um, lots of folks involved. And I just think it's exciting to be to think of the ways that we can make positive change in our communities wherever we find our seat. And uh, my first career was in government. So being sort of on the inside organizational path is one area that I'm very comfortable in and playing that bridge building and really appreciate the flexibility, um, as Alex said, that other groups will have to make change from the whole spectrum of inside and outside of the process because it's all needed. And I think that momentum really did make a difference in 2020. And we had a huge challenge in front of us and uh, the country came through in the end. Uh, the work isn't over, but we have a lot to celebrate in doing that so far. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I especially agree with what you're saying about the, everybody has a role to play. And, you know, I'm I'm actually looking over my, my friend Ann Udeloy is here with uh, North Seattle Progressives. And we're going to need the, you know, people in districts outside of red districts, because one of the things that we're really trying to get to tonight is how we can all work together uh, and, and really come together on some common goals. Um, Danielle, you mentioned both electoral work and organizing, and I want to get into that. Um, and specifically, I think I want to start with some of the challenges and also advantages of organizing in red and rural districts. Um, and I want to have a very open discussion about this, about organizing where each of you lives. Um, we'll start with the challenges. And I'm going to ask, actually ask everybody who's watching right now, uh, what are some of the challenges of organizing in red and rural districts where you live? So enter that into the chat bar because we want to hear you sound off on this. Uh, Danielle, we'll stick with you on this. Where you are, what are some of the challenges as you see them? You know, one of the challenges that I certainly saw for the 16th legislative district is that it's huge. It covers four counties. Um, so as a candidate, you're coordinating with your legislative district, all those county organizations. And, you know, it was one of the things I had to think about going into the campaign that at least in a COVID world was easier is I had the potential to be on the road you know, the whole time. And luckily Zoom meant that I could be in Columbia County um, one minute and literally the next minute hop over and talk to folks over in Prosser and Benton County. But the distances are real challenges in many of our rural districts. In Bob's area, in Ponderé, I mean, it's, it's huge. The fifth congressional district is the size of the state of Maryland. So the areas that we have to cover and the distance between doors for knocking is significant. Geographic challenges in a district the size of Maryland here in Washington. And Bob, she's uh, referring to you. And and uh, Kat, Shooty, I don't know if you want to weigh in on any of this, too, but are, are there specific challenges that you see uh, in your district in terms of, of organizing and connecting with other progressives? Well, I wasn't really prepared to speak. And if you don't want to, that's totally fine. But I, I, I see you here, and I thought maybe I would ask. Yeah, well... Um, definitely, I'm, I am a PCO and um, trying to ferret out who the Democrats are is painful because not everyone wants to actually go public with that, even to another Democrat. So um, I will I ride my bike to knock on doors because it's it, my precinct is large and kind of spread out. I have a, a neighborhood or two I can go through, but most of it's pretty spread out. Um, but for the most part, you know, I'm still greeted relatively well and warmly whenever we knock doors. So that but the big challenges is just getting people to uh, open up and respond at all. Yeah. <laughs> to yeah. Be honest. 
Well, Bob, yeah. you, you said the same thing when you and I were chatting by phone, and, and you said that uh, people are afraid of outing themselves as Democrats often because they're afraid that it'll be bad for their business, right? Well, yeah, that, and that's that's not unusual for Pondery County. Uh, that's, you know, uh, any place you have that issue if you're in business. Actually, um, informing our group, uh, it wasn't as difficult as we thought because um, as it, word of mouth is how we basically, you know, got the word out. We ran a little blurb in the newspaper, you know, the hot box ad, which is called, and it's like 20 bucks or something like that, announcing a meeting. We had pretty good attendance. But a bit after that, it was word of mouth. And uh, the thing is, it, it provided a form and a place for people that normally wouldn't say, I'm a Democrat or I'm a progressive because they didn't feel comfortable because of the mix, where they could come together and be able to talk and be able to discuss and be able to learn. And so we built that foundation very, very quick. And uh, it, it really, even though it was difficult, it wasn't as difficult as we thought it would be. Uh, but like Kathy said, uh, you know, the problem is distance and communication and so forth. Everybody does not have high speed Internet in this county. And in some places you have zero Internet. So that's a challenge. Alex, I know that your district isn't red per se. And um, Marsha, I don't know if you want to weigh in on this, too. But, you know, you've got a Republican takeover of, uh, you know, a, a, a Trumpist QAnon uh, Republican takeover of your city government. I'm wondering how that's impacted your organizing at all. Oh, I'll, I'll yield to Marsha on that. Give her a chance to yeah. fill in. Oh, is Marsha there? Well, yeah, she's there. I think it's been a kind of a catalyst in a way mm -hmm. <laughs> to have a QAnon uh, mayor. We're getting at some at a, a point where it became known around the country for a little while, CNN came and interviewed the mayor and so forth. Um, we got a lot of attention and that I think also drew a lot more of the local people uh, into joining Indivisible and getting active, um, trying to keep people active. I mean, it is a kind of a, a vacation area, so it's a nice day. People are, you know, go out and it's, it's hard to get them to come to meetings, especially Zoom meetings sometimes. But, um, yeah, I think with the uh, and then and then we have people being very active now in city council meetings that didn't used to be at all. Um, lots of call in questions to the city council. Um, then we have something called co coffee with the mayor and we now have people calling in a lot of questions on that. It's a radio program um, and kind of challenging him. And a lot of people have challenged him on on his his beliefs. Well, I want to get the full backstory on this, and I know that you're ready to tell it. And so I'll, I'll, I'm going to put that on ice for just a second. Danielle, you had something you wanted to add. In just thinking about challenges, and I think, you know, some of what we're hearing from our colleagues, too, is this bigger piece of hope and opportunity that is a challenge in rural. And so many people who have been you know, working in the trenches, democratic elections, it is hard to keep doing that when your candidates are maybe moving by points, but they aren't winning elections. And it's hard to keep the enthusiasm and the spirit up even when you, know, you maybe know it's, uh, you know it's not gonna work at the ballot box. And so I think that is important. And it's something that I hope we can address in terms of this opportunity of the conversation with so many different groups on this call is to talk about why rural matters and yep. making the case is a huge challenge. A big part of my um, campaign, despite being one of the top fundraisers in the whole state of all legislative candidates, no independent expenditure groups wanted to come spend money in my race in support of my campaign. And that was true across all of the rural districts in Eastern Washington. There was no outside money. And so the structure of campaigns where consultants understand rural, where outside investors understand it, it's it creates huge burdens in our districts. And so a shout out to everyone who's keeping up the hope because we do have to keep organizing and running. And I saw a comment in the chat box of, you know, how long do we have to wait before some of this change happens and we can't wait. We have to keep doing this work 
every single day on the ground. We have to do it in between election cycles and we have to keep encouraging people to run so that we can press back against the candidates from the far right extreme who otherwise have full license to run in our communities and don't have anyone pressing back to say, that's not okay. That's not how we want our community to run. And I'm so impressed by all the work in SWIM and what's been done to press back against your city council. So huge thank you on behalf of our whole state. <laughs> well, I, I so want to get into everything that you're talking about, Danielle. And I'm just going to ask that we just put a pin in it for just a second, because there are a couple things that I want to front load so that we get a little bit more context when we get to the electoral stuff. Uh, but Kat, I'll just stop right here and say, what are some of the things that people are saying about the challenges of organizing where they are? Oh, gosh, it seems like a number of the challenges revolve around distance, either the large geographical areas we're talking about, distance between homes, not knowing if someone's going to be there because of how many homes are actually vacation homes, reluctance and an unwillingness to have people drive up to your door in more rural areas. And then you get into the percentage of your elected officials who are Republican, hostility towards progressives, um, uh, just so many things, organized opposition to any progressive movement, such as the SOS group uh, that Lisa Decker mentions, uh, uh, opposition to an opioid clinic being built by the Jamestown Skalalam uh, tribe. So there's all of these issues that I think are true of less urban areas and population centers, as well as all of rural and red Washington. I I think, you know, it's what's really interesting was when I went into this uh, and, and I was starting to put questions together, I was thinking mainly of challenges. And then Danielle was like, hey, talk about some of the advantages, because there are definite advantages to working in this environment as well. And so I want to get into that, too. I see heads nodding. Um, so I'll, I'll ask the audience the same question. What are some of the advantages that you see of organizing in red and rural districts? Danielle, since you were the one who brought this to my attention, um, lay out some uh, some some items for me. But what are some of the some of the ways that, that, that it's it's better and easier to do what you're doing where you are? I think one of the things that I found having lived in cities, you know, grew up in small town, lived in cities back in small town, is that we do know our neighbors really well. And for those of us who know our community well, it means we probably also have had experience having conversations with people who think very differently uh, about us on a whole variety of issues, whether that's family members or neighbors. Um, you know, we do have that really strong skill set in particular, which is helpful. Um, the other piece I would say is just even structurally, some things are cheaper and easier in rural districts. In the 16th legislative districts, there just aren't as many voters. So a legislative campaign in our area, we only have 70,000 registered voters. Most campaigns on the west side would be over 100,000 in a legislative district. So your budget's already less. Television was only $25 a point compared to hundreds, if not thousands, and more urban areas. So we also can run campaigns at a different level and really make gains um, in, with a smaller margin of uh, a budget to get into a race. So those are a few. So it's, I look forward to hearing. Yeah, yeah. I want to hear from other people, too. So you're, you're saying basically you, because you know people personally, it's easier to kind of make those interpersonal uh, connections. And it's often easier to interact with people who you may not necessarily disagree with because you have that personal history. And then you get bigger bang for your buck when it comes to things like advertising and, and running campaigns. Um, Bob, any thoughts on the matter? Well, I think, you know, you, with, with knowing people and you're in a smaller community or, or smaller county population wise, I want to make a sidebar comment. You're talking about voters uh, incorrectly, but we have less than 10,000 registered voters in the whole county. So <laughs> that's a big difference. Uh, but you get you, with small, with knowing people, you kind of get over that hump of it's us versus them. It's Democrat versus Republican a little bit because you know each other. And um, you can normally have a fairly, I mean, you always have on, on both sides, on the, uh, the extremes out there. But that's a little bit of a challenge that it's easier to overcome because you know people or they know you or at least know who you are, that you're not a wacko out here or something like that. And I'm going to circle back that with uh, with Indivisible, I found that uh, it gave a real opportunity and a place for people to come together and discuss. You know, 
we have people come to our individual meeting that are progressive you, you'll never see at a county democratic party meeting for example but they will participate in the indivisible and uh, they have great ideas and they they're willing to step up and volunteer uh, i think that's a big big plus in rural areas versus i've lived in a city in a metro area very short time thankfully i didn't know who my neighbor was next door so that's the difference that's a plus. So yeah, indivisible gives people cover to to kind of get involved, and you there's there's less of a an us and them mentality, which I think you know. And you talk about sort of the impersonal nature of living in a city. It's very easy to otherize people in a city when you're well, interacting you know, with people uh, on a you know in a, in a community that's much smaller. I think it probably gets harder, right? You're going to see the person, even though maybe they're a, a Republican or they don't agree with you or whatever. They may be a progressive and don't agree with you, but you may see them in a grocery store or the hardware store the next day. So you don't want to get an adversarial situation. You want to be able to say, hi, how are you? How's your kids? How the, how's the WSU football team doing this year? That helps people be able to talk and not get at each other's throat, for lack of a better term. So, Alex, I know that, you know, technically your district is blue, but your city is red. And so what are your, some of your thoughts? What, what, what's coming to mind as you, as you hear this discussion about, about um, you know, advantages of working in, in, this, in this environment? Well, actually, um, uh, our, our city is blue marginally. And uh, it was pretty much the stealth uh, attack and stealth plan to take over City Hall when our attention was elsewhere and the Dems weren't following it at all. And we were thinking more Olympia and national things that, and we didn't know they, they weren't, uh, it was all by stealth. We didn't know the backgrounds. I was desperately trying to find deep research on uh, the candidates in 2019 and it was too little too late uh won't be there again um oh your, your question um i'm sorry I'm, well i was just kind of talking about the different advantages uh, that you see oh, well, of organizing so, where some, you are well the advantages as was mentioned we get to know people really well and that that is fabulous it's not it's not too large for that. So the disadvantages is we're in a blind spot for radio and TV. There's there's no uh, TV station that's covering here. There's uh, one little newspaper that uh, covers both sides. And so the letters to the editor, that's the first thing we all go to. And we, we try to uh, keep uh, keep keep the letters and, uh, and op-eds. Uh, coming and have had pretty good success in that but the, so there's um uh because of the isolation you can get uh, cbc from canada easier than you can than certainly than pbs radio or um so there's um uh, I, I guess there's, there's an, an information void and a lot of people aren't really engaged except uh, online if they have cable tv yeah well, so, in a smaller population, maybe a little less participation rate, and also because of all the other distractions around here. So, well, so, so, Kat, what are you seeing in the chat bar? What are people saying about some of the advantages of working in their districts? Well, it's very interesting, uh, the number of our guests who mentioned the same thing that people echoed in the chat, which is that in a smaller town, it's much easier to get to know people you tend to run into people and you recognize names you'll see in the paper. Um, as Danielle mentioned, you have to develop skills of talking to people who don't have the same ideas as you do. That is pretty much it. Unless, uh, oh, Glenn is mentioning about advertising postcards and so forth. Oh, that's clever. Uh, advertising non-political things in your postcards to help grab people's attention. Oh, nice. All right. Well, so, Danielle, we're going to come back around to electoral work, and this is very much your wheelhouse. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to talk about running candidates in red and rural districts, why it's important, because it is often a losing battle. So this is another question I'll put to everybody who's watching. What lessons have you learned from your district uh, running Democrats in red and rural districts where you are? And I'll just ask you a very fundamental question, Danielle. Why does it matter that we run Democrats everywhere? I think it matters first to that there's just nothing like a campaign to get Democratic or progressive messages out in the community. 
It's the most organizing, urgent experience um, that happens routinely. And so it's key, obviously, the decisions that are made at a local level in our communities. As we've seen this last year at a pandemic, we can't take democracy for granted at any level. We need to make sure we're running candidates and building that bench. And then I really look at this, as I said, as uh, our national security and securing our democracy by running candidates and I think we've all been concerned and I'm using SQUIM's example to help recruit local candidates to run here in Walla Walla and saying, you know, we can't take for granted. We need to make sure we have solid community-minded people running for office on our city council. And you look at the Lauren Culp, the Matt Shays, the Republicans are running extreme right candidates. And when Democrats step up to run, we can counter that message. We can push back and every single percentage point we gain on the ground is helpful. Um, it helps to put our communities on the map. It also helps to draw, um, even though I didn't get progressive money for myself and my campaign, our campaign drew over $200,000 um, of money against myself and the other Republican running that was money that didn't attack other progressives on the West side who were then able to actually um, win office. So everybody being involved and pulling together makes a huge difference. Um, and the last thing that I think is just important to say about running is the challenges facing our state cannot be solved unless rural communities are at the table and part of the solutions. And that happens by having those policy conversations during elections and reminding people that climate change is something that our rural communities care desperately about. Our economic livelihoods depend on addressing it. Healthcare, we can't fight a pandemic um, in our state unless every single county is getting vaccinated and wearing masks and supporting our small businesses who are affected so we recover economically. So every issue has a rural component and we need to be at the table. I'm seeing so many heads nodding and so many you know good points in the, in the chat bar. I'm wondering just from your own personal experiences, um, what did you take away from your time running for, for Senate that you are applying now in your current position? One of my big motivators for running was just recognizing the structural divide because the only Democrats in the state legislature are from downtown Spokane, which is um, from the east side of the state, and that is the second largest city in Washington state. So that means every time the Democratic caucus, which thankfully has the majority in our state legislature, every time they meet in a room, rural communities are not at that table. And again, for everything we said, we can't address issues unless rural voices are part of the solution. And so that motivation of saying our communities deserve a seat at that table. And I was really proud of the work um, our teams did on that campaign and lots of other great races around the state talking about those issues and really motivating me in this work now in the state party to say we as Democrats, it wasn't just my race where a rural Democrat didn't win. It was uh, every race across Washington state. It was a national problem. And I'm grateful that um, President Biden and his cabinet are really looking at this challenge that we're seeing in the American Rescue Plan and other pieces. There are very specific rural pieces and conversations being had about how do we invest in rural? How do we get jobs back and truly build back better, including in rural? And um, it matters that we believe in it, that we keep pushing for um, the representation and talking about the ways um, rural communities need investment and what we can bring to the table to help tackle the challenges in front of us. You know, Bob, this uh, reminds me of a conversation, uh, the part of the conversation that we had the other day when you told me that having a D next to your name on the ballot is like the kiss of death. And I started thinking about, we're talking about how you might change that. And you said one of the things that could change that is the Biden administration just delivering, delivering on relief, delivering on infrastructure packages, helping people personally. Do you, are, do you have a sense that that might bring some people around? Uh, yes, I do. I want to back up a little bit, though, before that, is, as far as why they need to have candidates on the ballot besides, you know, un having unopposed candidates is, is horrible because 
it doesn't provide an alternative voice out there for the voters. If you just have one candidate running, there's no alternative voice. There's no discussion. Also, unopposed people that get elected usually end up being poor people being elected. They don't make good decisions <laughs> because they have no opposition, nobody bending their ear type thing. You know, and also with having ca uh, opposing candidates, two candidates on the ballot or three or whatever it is, people pay attention. They pay attention to issues. If it's only one singular candidate, people go, oh, well, that's just it. That's the only choice you got. It's either yes or no, vote vote, or just bypass and go to the next candidate for the next office down there. But yeah, I think that the Biden infrastructure plan uh, is is just, it's, it's in work in progress, obviously, but it recognizes so many things that would benefit rural areas and rural Washington. You know, I just, I keep going back and it's, there's some work being done in the state legislature on this issue too, but the uh, on, a, on a federal level, broadband is a big piece of that infrastructure plan. And that is critical for jobs, it's critical for education, for healthcare, communication, for people being informed. Uh, you know, I know in screen you said you had lousy uh, television communication. We don't even get television reception here on the farm, for example. We do get NPR radio, but uh, we don't even get television reception. So broadband as part of the infrastructure plan is just a real key part and will help rural, uh, rural America and rural yes. Washington, obviously. Also the creation of jobs, permanent jobs that will spin off from that infrastructure. That's a real key. You know, it's great when you go build a bridge, contractors come in, they hire some people locally, they get the bridge built and they're gone. But it's not permanent job. It's permanent jobs that I think that is part of the infrastructure plan that I think will help a country, it'll help the Democratic Party, it'll help progressives. Alex, I, I see you nodding. Anything you wanted to add to that? Well, also, um, yes, um, the, the jobs is a is a big issue in Clallam County. Uh, Squim is a little aberration and uh, a little bit tending blue from new imports of retirees in a in a reddish county. And fortunately, we for our LD twenty four area includes some more progressive areas like Port Townsend and everything. So our three representatives in Olympia can all be Democrats <laughs> just by the skin of their teeth. Um, but uh, price, price of housing and, and developing new industries, uh, everyone's being priced out, all the locals, uh, uh, all the contractors and stuff, they've got to commute to come here. Whoever cuts my hair has come from somewhere else because they can't afford to live and swim. And uh, development, something to replace uh, the paper mills of the past and the logging, although that's, that's still a big industry here, but it's, it's got to diversify. Um, they were going to do so much probably for solar and wind and all the rest. Not happening because of the old boy um, hmm. networks. Um, yeah. And it's a, it's a real shame. Uh, we could be recycling and repurposing plastic waste that don't go to China anymore. Uh, a jillion different things. And, and I don't see a whole lot happening. Well, Kat, before we move on, I just want to stop and acknowledge some of the things that people are saying about the advantages that they see of, uh, of running in, in red districts. What are, what are some people saying in the chat bar? Well, I'm not hearing many advantages to running in, <laughs> in but I, there has been a couple of interesting questions. Lisa, Des Lisa Decker asks about what about running as an independent and would voters be more likely to vote for an independent? Kat responded, Kat Schuette responded that they had a progressive run as an independent up in Ponderay when that person declined to be to run as a Republican, the Republicans supported a weak candidate instead. So that tactic didn't work up there, but it would be interesting to hear what people think about this independent idea. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting. If anybody wants to sound off in the chat bar about that, please do. Um, Marsha, I'm going to bring you in right now because um, I really do want to hear um, the, the the tale of the QAnon uh, mayor. And I especially want to hear about what you have done uh, in response to that. So, you know, uh, as many people uh, watching know, Squim got national attention because uh, their mayor is an adherent of, of QAnon. It's an enormously complex story. There are a lot of moving parts. But I wonder if you can just kind of shorthand it for us. How did Squim come to have a QAnon? mayor? Well, I think there were three major kind of factors involved. And one of them was, as you've already heard, the Matt Clinic, 
um, there was a group called Save Our Squim that tried to stop this MAP clinic from coming in, even though it's, you know, the best treatment for uh, opioid abuse issues. Um, those people, a lot of them were associated with the Clallam Republicans. Another group that was active was a small group of very active Republicans, the Independent Advisory Association, name means vague, plain name, uh, two people who were recruiting uh, candidates, conservatives specifically, to run for office and training them and coaching them. Three of their candidates um, were, uh, were ran unopposed in 2019, November 2019, to, for city council, and they won. And all of them also ran on that platform of opposing this MAP clinic. And it's, it's hard to describe just how that Matt clinic issue became a wedge issue, you know? Um, and we were kind of seeing ourselves as, gee, what's happening nationally is happening here. Um, you know, fear being used. Uh, there are gonna be addicts bust in from Seattle and, you know, defecating on the streets and attacking our old vulnerable retired population. I mean, it was really strong and I, you know, I, again, the, the, the platform of, of running against the clinic, I think, helped get Armacost onto the city council uh, and, and also being groomed by that, inter, you know, the IAA group. Another thing was that after the 2018 election, which was so important to us, um, you know, Indivisible Squim had a small but very active elections committee, and we, we did a lot of research. We worked real hard. Um, we worked at, for, for county races as, as well as national and state races, but what we didn't do, I think what happened after that was we got burned out, right? I mean, a lot of us are not uh, professional organizers or activists. We haven't done this our whole lives. We've just came here and, and got involved because of, we wanted to resist Trump. And so we were taking some time off. And in that time, we had these three candidates uh, run for city council. Now we'd always had a reasonable city council. Uh, the mayor, the woman who was mayor when I got here about six years ago, was the president of the League of Women Voters. I mean, it was a it was a a pretty you know I did, it didn't seem like there was any problem with that group, so we weren't paying attention. Um, and and I think we just were burned out. And I'm telling you, it, it's not going to happen again. <laughs> um, so. We've had to live with the uh, the results of having those three elected to the city council. Now, it's our city council who selects the mayor, not the voters here. So the city council selected the mayor in early 2020. Gotcha. Okay. And that's how he became the mayor. Um, it's really a ceremonial position. He doesn't have a lot of power. That goes to the city manager. But... Um, he has a majority now. There have been several people resign, and one person died in the past year who oh, were wow. on the city council. And well, if I could those, just jump in and just ask, what has yeah. it meant for your city to have a QAnon adherent mayor? Well, it's hurt us. I mean, it's hurt us. Um, for one thing, when the mayor uh, spoke on a radio program, the Coffee with the Mayor program, and said QAnon was a truth movement, and he recommended that listeners go listen, go watch a video, a QAnon video, uh, in which the cabal, you know, was going to be eradicated from the face of the earth. That drew attention from Seattle, and then we heard from CNN, and then we heard from Bloomberg News, and so forth. And and what that did was it it drew a lot of negative publicity. So our Chamber of Commerce was saying, uh, you know, they've been getting hundreds of letters from people who no longer wanted to vacation here, didn't want to buy homes here anymore, didn't want to retire here, didn't want to do business here because we have these extremists in office. And uh, and then when the council uh, fired our great city manager, um, that cost us more money because now we have to recruit another city manager. And so, you know, it hasn't been it hasn't been great. Well, um, so, yeah. So so what are some of the ways that uh, I know that there's a good governance league that that formed around this and also Indivisible Squim? What are some of the things that you are doing to push back right now? 
Well, the Swim Good Governance League was formed after the city mayor was forced, uh, city city manager was forced out, and um, they started a big petition. We had almost 2,000 signatures, and this this is in a small area, you know, so that was a lot. The Good Governance League is determined to do what the Republican small group did uh, to recruit candidates to run for city council, to train them, uh, to coach them, and then to do canvassing, send postcards, write letters, and Indivisible Squim is very much involved with that effort. In fact, there's a lot of overlap in membership, which is another small town uh, thing, you know, is, is a lot of people belong to the same progressive groups. Um, so, so yeah, we're going to be very active. Indivisible can have a special role, I think, in that this, the Good Governance League is kind of afraid to speak out too much. I mean, they, they want to be very nonpartisan. Whereas Indivisible Squim, we're, we can be a little more vocal about calling out the mayor when he says something ridiculous, yeah. like, you know, uh, or he isn't going to get vaccinated because he thinks COVID is a hoax. Um, you know, we can be more, uh, we can be louder about that. And we've actually decided it would be sort of a campaign in Indivisible Squim to um, to get our city council changed to Good. get new and, and so you're pushing on behalf of candidates then we definitely are we Good. know we know some people who wanted to run because they applied for these vacant positions over the past year and some of them are great and some of them we know are going to run at least a couple Good. and others are being kind of quiet about it until they declare uh, their candidacy but uh, but we're 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 talking to a lot of people. Okay, and, good. Well, I, I want to talk about electoral uh, stuff that's happening this fall uh, in general, and we're so close to being out of time, but there are some things that I really want to make sure that we get to. Uh, Danielle, I, I want to ask you, I know that you're uh, planning on building up uh, Democratic presence in rural communities for local elections. Um, I want to ask specifically about the work that you're doing as 5th Congressional District Representative to the Washington Democrats Executive Board. Um, the ultimate aim here is to get rid of Kathy McMorris Rogers, right? Very much so. <laughs> Good thumbs up yeah. here, yeah. <laughs> yes, this so, part of my um, campaign recovery process is figuring out how can I take everything I learned and put it to good use and um, thinking about how to flip the fifth is a huge motivator. And part of what we're trying to do on the ground level is make sure um, that our communities are involved in redistricting to start with, because redistricting could affect the fifth, could look very different in 2022. So making sure that all of our legislative districts and um, folks are involved in the process and encourage everyone here, if you haven't checked out League of Women Voters and their work or the redistricting commission itself, um, to be paying attention to that process as there are chances to testify and talk about the political boundaries in your community this year. We are recruiting precinct committee officers so that we have built up those foot soldiers at every level throughout the district. So we have that knowledge in place and then really building out our strategy around um, affiliated groups labor unions, environmental groups, other progressive groups like Indivisible, um, civil rights organizations, because there is a vast progressive um, and left-leaning infrastructure. And the more the formal Democratic Party infrastructure understands um, and has strong relationships with all of those partners, the easier it will be for whichever candidate runs in 2022 to plug right into it. Um, That will be important in the fifth, because as we said, we need to move along, Kathy McMorris Rogers. Um, <laughs> the 2022 also has a huge opportunity because Patty Murray will be up for re-election. So in every part of our state, um, she is consistently the Democrat that polls highest, even in our rural areas. And so we really can use that opportunity to mobilize and get people involved and excited about the political process. Bob, I just wanted to ask you very quickly, uh, is uh, Indivisible Ponderay, do you have any plans, specific plans for uh, this year's election? I'm, I'm sorry, I, I missed the question. There, yeah, I was just I asking you if, if Indivisible Ponderay has any specific plans for this year's election. Well, other than, well, I'll, I'll tag along with what Danielle is, what can we do to uh, get a replacement for Catherine Morse Rogers? And um, 
I guess with our small group, what we do, she knows we're out here. I, you know, several of us met for the coffee with Kathy, which is actually water with Kathy. No coffee is served. Uh, <laughs> you know, letters to the editor. Uh, you know, uh, I know several of us have been in Spokesman Review, which is our largest regional newspaper, plus also in the local media and so forth. You know, we keep pointing out her shortcomings. You know, she voted against, you know, the, the w- Violence Against Women's Act, you know, things like that. Just keep hammering away and get that message out there to try to get people not to vote for Kathy Forge Rogers in 2022. I don't know if our regional organizer, Nina Masavi, is on tonight, but if she were, she would be absolutely applauding you uh, right now because letters to the editor are so, so, so important uh, to what she does. So, you know, in closing here, I'm just going to ask everybody to weigh in on the chat. Given everything we've all talked about, um, what are ways that we can all help each other? I'll ask people in red districts what they would like to hear from blue and purple districts. And blue and purple districts, are you hearing anything from people here tonight that you think think, hey, we could help out with that. Um, I would love to just have people kind of uh, run down some ideas in the in the chat bar there. Um, and I, we have just a, a couple questions, and I know that we're right up against the clock, but I will ask one that I think is on a lot of people's minds, um, and that is how do you see the impact of disinformation, and how are you organizing against it? I think I'd actually love to hear each of you sound off on that. Uh, Marsha, can you just uh, give us maybe like 30 seconds of, of, of your thoughts on having, you know, a QAnon mayor, has that impacted the rise of disinformation in your community, and how are you fighting back against that? It really does. Uh, it really has impacted uh, disinformation, <clears throat> along with the Save Our Squim group, um, because we, we've we've got a, a, people on social media in particular uh, who don't believe the you know the, the COVID is real. They think the vaccine is going to you know microchip them and Bill Gates they'll be in his control. Bill right. Gates is control. <laughs> um, it's I, I was a librarian and so I always try when I'm on social media I always put in links to information to say no this is what's actually happening you know and. That actually turns out not to work very well, <laughs> which is a blow for a librarian. But um, we had a wonderful presentation on Sunday. Uh, we have a woman here who started a group called Speaking Justice, and she is actually offering training on how we can counter uh, disinformation and and speak to people better. Because we don't have what we have is is an is is anger in our city. Yeah. You know, unlike some of you, we don't. When, when when we see people we've argued with on social media in town, it's uncomfortable, you know, and so and it, it's gotten pretty nasty and racist too against the tribe. So um, so we have a lot of work to do. And I think this training um, from Miriam Shabib with Speaking Justice is also going to help us. Um, Danielle, I understand you're losing power there. So I just want to get some final words from you if you have to go. Um, what are your thoughts about the impact of disinformation and, and how to organize against it, specifically where you are? It is a really significant challenge for campaigns, for community issues, for the reasons that Marsha discussed. Um, two things that I would just flag um, in this space. One is there is some training around um, what's called the truth sandwich. And so if if anyone's doing the current T3 training that the state Democratic Party um, and the DNC are offering nationally, um, and you can Google truth sandwich and see it's a um, you know, way to counter disinformation without repeating it, because often if you repeat something, someone just grabs onto that idea. So you do have to be careful about how you counter it in terms of your choice of language. And in this space, I think just it's important to also underscore that people have a deep need to feel seen, heard, and understood. And too often in our rural communities, we do not feel seen, heard, or understood by the classic Democratic Party, by other parts of the state and the powers that be. And so in thinking about disinformation in our communities, I think it's also helpful for all of us to approach conversations from, tell me more about that. What is it that you're experiencing? And ask someone about their perspective to learn about it and understand it without having to persuade and convince them at least the first time. 
people want to feel heard. So start with listening. Um, the rest will be easier afterwards. Spoken like a true diplomat, my friend, which you uh, were in Washington, D.C. for, uh, what, 10 years, were you? Uh, almost 14. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That's that's awesome. Um, well, so if we do happen to lose you, I just want to say uh, thank you uh, for being here. You are a rock star. Thank you for all that you do. Um, and for everybody else who's on the line, we're getting indications that people would like to continue this for a little bit longer and that they're they're enjoying the conversation. So I'm I'm good to hang out for for just a little bit longer. Um, and Bob, I'll, we had another question from Sarah and you were uh, alluding to this earlier. Uh, she says, what suggestions do you have for initiating conversations and relationships with people in our very red precincts? Well, I think, uh, Danielle, hit perfectly. you have to listen. You can't be uh, argumentative. Uh, that helps a lot. You know, you ask, there's a way to, well, how, where did you hear that? Or, uh, you know, and listen to what they've got to say. And then you don't come right back at it with them with, uh, well, that's wrong type thing. So uh, it's just how you present yourself to the people there. I would add this, one, one thing we do up here, since we have a, such a small population base, is letters to the editor is very important. You don't tax somebody, you, you, you discuss the problem with facts. And that's really critical. You, you, too many times I've seen letters to the editor, they're attacking an individual and that turns people off. Same way with op-eds, that works really well. Also, I really encourage people, if you have your group, if they have a talent, have them step forward to provide programs. You know, we've gone outside our area. I did a program on dark money for the group in Spokane, for example, and um, people liked it. And uh, so you can really interact with people by doing it in that manner and really um, make, you know, get some good contacts that way and maybe change a few minds. You're super personable. So I, I think you're a, you're a perfect ambassador for all of this. Um, we had an audience question from Kathleen Wallace. She asks, I really want to know how we can help in rural areas. Can we help squim with postcard writing? Alex? Yes. Uh, later later in the summer, once the candidates are going to declare in uh, mid-May, and then uh, in June, we're going to, uh, that could we very much uh, be a help and possibly texting and phone banking that'll all that'll all get uh, be coordinated we are very appreciative of uh, any help you can you can give. Thank you so much. Excellent. Um, there are three work groups uh, that people on this call might be interested in. The Washington State Red and Rural Work Group, the National Rural Raucous Caucus, and the Semi-Regular West Coast Calls. Uh, if anybody is interested in any of these, uh, just make a note in the chat bar or drop Catalina at WashingtonIndivisible at gmail.com, and she will give you information on that. Kat, I'll just bring you back in here. Are we hearing from anybody with ideas on either how to help or, or things that, that people need? Uh, people have in, expressed interest in helping others and in receiving help. We had a fantastic offer of free postcards. Uh, hold on a minute. I've got to go back and find it. I think it was Glenn Rudolph who well, said that well, he had all these great postcards. Well, while you find that, Danielle, I see you have your hand up. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, defer to you for a second, Kat, while you find that. Thank you, and just in case, well, I'm still on. Um, <laughs> one thing, and as a former candidate, I just would also like to say, please coordinate your energy directly, especially in a nonpartisan year, directly with the campaigns wherever you can, because um, especially in red and rural areas, it, you really need to follow a candidate's lead about how progressive leaning um, they feel they can be and how affiliated they may wanna be with different groups. So to in the do no harm philosophy, talk to candidates, ask what they need, sign up on their volunteer list, donate and get involved. So thank you all so much for the time to connect tonight. Thank you, Danielle. And yeah, that's such a super important point. I mean, we hear that when we get involved with, you know, races in other states. It's just like, you know, don't be a carpetbagger. <laughs> you know, definitely defer to the people who know their campaigns best. And in this case, we have our, our, our candidates on hand to do that. So, Kat, I'll come back to you. Were you able to find that? It, yes, indeed. It was Glenn. And I just texted you the information from the chat. By the way, everybody, you can save the chat and I will also send it send out any pertinent information from the chat, but it was Glenn Rudolph, who is our 13th LD chair in Roslyn Ellensburg, saying that they have homemade postcards and he'd love to help out red and rural areas by sending them out. 
All right. Well, I think this is probably a good place to leave it unless anybody else. Oh, Bob, you've got your finger up. Yes, sir. Yeah. Well, everybody on this, everybody on this uh, podcast tonight, I, I'm speaking to the preaching the choir. How's that? <laughs> but Washington Indivisible for our small group is a great, great asset from the standpoint of the programs that you guys put on. And same way with the North Kicks app. We tap into those and uh, share those with our group because, you know, we can't bring Kathy, uh, we can't bring uh, Senator Murray up here, but we can listen to her, what she's got to say on your podcast. It's just great asset for us out here in rural areas. Also, you've got other organizations that you, you interact with, for example, a Fuse down in Spokane, you people over in SWIM have some groups. Boy, networking is just very critical and an asset and helps everybody in that respect. But a shout out to Washington Invisible Network and to, to uh, Nina. She does a great job as far as keeping stuff out there and information. Thank you for saying that. I, I really appreciate that. We're very grateful that it serves. And I honestly can't say enough good things about my pal, Nina Musavi. Uh, she really has, uh, she's focused so much on on Red and Roll because I think she really understands the importance. Um, so as Kat was saying, the, the, the chat is available for everybody. Uh, if you want to, uh, at this point, leave your you know email address for other people, if you have any uh, sort of contact information that you would like to leave, um, please do so at this point because we're going to shut it down in just a couple minutes. But yeah, I want to sort of uh, flip uh, what uh, uh, Bob just said and say, we're so grateful to all of you for doing the work that you do. I mean, you know, Kat and I live in, I, I'm, in a, I'm in Issaquah. It's a very reliably blue place. And, uh, you know, Kat's in Bellevue. And we, um, I think we have an, an understanding of, of what it is that, that you do, where you are, but you're really on the ground. You really, really know uh, your stuff, and we're so grateful that you're out there doing the work. And, uh, yeah, just want to say thanks to all of you for being here tonight. Um, any final words from any of our panelists? Yeah, uh, go uh, ahead, Alex. Sort of a different suggestion. Um, a a uh, conference where Facebook administrators and moderators get together and share their best practices with each other. Or uh, get the, getting the most of investing if you've got a website, how you can make it so it's not a black hole taking up time and to be current, uh, what you can share and kind of steal from each other and ideas. And Anybody listening? Well, anybody anybody out there at all? Because we could use that. I, I would I would avail myself of that, you know. Because yeah. that's our main, our yep. main um, thing that keeps everyone energized and going and... Yep. Uh, all that it's real real important for the health of our organization well i just want to say you know, uh yes. can i jump in on that Please, actually Kat. national is offering a series of social media training courses and i will include all of those dates and courses in the follow-up email this is why cat is so awesome you guys because she knows <laughs> these things she she she's always like a, a, she, she has a sixth sense for these things so uh cat and bob shooty uh alex fain marcia mcguire um and then of course daniel garby reeser had to to leave us but i just want to say thank you so much for your time tonight this has been really really instructive uh yeah thanks for taking the time we really appreciate it thanks for having me and that is it for this week's show. Thank you again to Alex Fain, Marsha McGuire, Bob and Kat Schutte, and Daniel Garvey-Reeser. Thanks also to Nina Masabi, Afton Bain, Robin Gittleman, Louise Pathé, and Kevin Jones. The website for this show is indivisiblepodcast.org, and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The producer of the Town Hall series is Kat Pipkin. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is distributed through the Demcast Podcast Network. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Colwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.